Hi, everybody. My name is Chris Bitson. I'm part of the leadership team here at Crossroads Campus. I'm excited to start this new series uh, that is called Asking for a Friend. So a few months ago, we asked everyone, we were still worshiping outside here at this campus, but at all the Charter of Church campuses, we asked uh, people to list down some questions about life, about faith, and about the Bible that they might have been hesitant to ask previously. We received more questions than we could possibly answer over a four-week series. So many of the questions were similar or at least from the same perspective. So when you hear a question that we're going to address, it may not be word for word the way you might have asked it if you, if you put a submission into the box, but that's okay. We're going to do the best that we can to answer all of these questions through a biblical worldview. We seek to do everything here at Charter Oak Church through a gospel-centered, biblically faithful perspective. We also recognize that you might disagree. You might disagree with some of these answers to the questions. You see, we have eight essential beliefs here at Charter Oak Church, and we take a firm stance on those eight beliefs. But we also recognize there are many non-essential beliefs. Actually, there's tons of them. And in these situations, we study the Bible to realize that God doesn't give us a specific direction or a command on a particular subject. Now, as we progress through this series, I just want to say it one more time, it's okay if you disagree. We can agree to disagree in love. Now, saying all of that, I want to start our first question. The first question is, when is division healthy in a church family, in a church or in a, fa- or in a family? Excuse me. Now, if you have your Bibles with you here this morning, we're going to start by reading three scriptures here. Uh, feel free to follow along. It'll also be up on the screen. And if you don't have a Bible this morning, please, we, we have some Bibles on the shelves back there in the, in the back right corner of the CLC here, and it will be our gift to you. But let's start by going to John chapter 17, verse 20 and 21. This is the words of Jesus. My prayer is not for them alone. I pray also for those who will believe in me through their message, that all of them may be one. Father, just as you are in me and I am in you, may they also be in us, that the world may believe that you have sent me. Then let's go to 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 10. I appeal to you, brothers and sisters, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that all of you agree with one another in what you say, and that there may be no divisions among you, but that you may be perfectly united in mind and thought. Then let's turn to Ephesians chapter 4, verses 3 through 6. Make every effort to keep unity of the Spirit through the bond of peace. There is one body and one Spirit. Just as you were called to one hope when you were called, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God, one Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. 
Now, I picked those three passages because they're very clear and very strong. But the first thing I want to say as we read those passages is that we don't create unity. We don't create unity. As a disciple of Jesus, when we put our faith in Jesus as Lord and Savior, we become a child of God. And at that point, we're grafted into the family of God. One Lord, one faith, one baptism, and one God. So if we can't create unity, let me ask you the question, then who does? You see, Paul instructs us right there in Ephesians that we just last read, make every effort to keep the unity of the Spirit. You see, it's the Holy Spirit that creates unity. It originates in the Holy Spirit because we're children of God. We are only instructed to keep the unity, not to create it. The second thing I want to point out from these passages is the impact. So the impact of unity uh, is, is not due to, let's just say, institutional oneness. The impact uh, that that we have on our, that, that we can have in unity, it, it's not dependent on denominations. It's probably a better way for me to put it. The world would still be drawn to, to Jesus if we didn't have denominations. The impact on our community and world uh, is that when unbelievers see our unity and acts of love and how we care for one another, that's what draws us to Jesus. I know when I first walked through these doors of this campus seven years or so ago, the one thing that stood out to my wife and I was the family that was here at Crossroads. Everybody knew one another. Everybody cared for one another. And me just walking in the door for the first time, they wanted to get to know me. I grew up in a non-denominational church as a kid. We didn't have that type of community. That was special and drew me back to Jesus. <clears throat> Excuse me. Didn't mean to choke up there a little bit. My son's not here today. He's at a hockey game right now. But if he were here, every morning before he goes on a bus... I ask him a question. What are you going to do today? And his answer to me is, I'm going to show him the love of God. Just think of the impact that we could make in the community if we entered every single day by showing the love of God to everybody we meet. The third thing I want to point out is that there's no sense of unity just for the sake of unity. The only kind of unity that glorifies God is the unity of truth. That's it. For Jesus and for the other writers of the New Testament, it was inconceivable for them to think that you could love another person by throwing away the truth for the sake of peace. 
that was inconceivable to them. And finally, conflict should be healthy and it should be good. Let's go to 1 Corinthians 11, verses 18 and 19. Now, this one's from the ESV. The other uh, scripture that we read was from the NIV. But from the ESV, this, this is uh, verses 18 and 19. For in the first place, when you come together as a church, I hear that there are divisions among you, and I believe it in part, for there must be factions among you in order that those who are genuine among you may be recognized. You see, Paul doesn't say that I see divisions among you, and you must come together as a church. You need to stop these divisions. That's not what he says. You see, conflict is necessary for churches and families to remain healthy. Now, why is that? Is that to prove who's who? Is that to prove who's really here to worship and obey and follow Jesus? Or who's here for other reasons? Is that why that is? You see, here's what conflict does. It draws out whatever's inside of us. For better or for worse, we need to see what conflict reveals. You see, Paul says, there's factions among you. People are not walking in the truth of God's word. Conflict uncovers what's in your heart, what's in their heart. It proves the genuineness of your faith. One of the benefits uh, that we've been going through here with our denomination, okay, uh, it, it has revealed, at least to me, within Charter Oak Church, that we have unity in God's truth. Our church is built upon God's word. Over the last few years, the, the struggles we've experienced has produced unity not division. Listen, we don't aim for conflict. We aim for unity in the spirit. And as far as I'm concerned, let's pursue the togetherness in the truth. And let's receive this conflict as an invitation to explore and experience more of the oneness that we have in Jesus. So let's move on to the next question. Why are there so many different denominations? Other questions that we received that fit under this heading are, what, what would Jesus say about the different denominations of Christians, both Catholic and Protestant, and all of their subdivisions? What would he think? Is one better than another, or is one more inclusive than the others? Would he approve? Now, you can see why I started today by answering the question first about division, right? Basically, I think we have so many different denominations because there's so many non-essential beliefs. What a church believes and in, in, in its view of Scripture, that's, that's what divides us the most. That's, that's where a lot of these denominations are founded upon. But there are other factors as well. Many Christians may, may uh, uh, put up with worship styles that they are crazy about because they like what their denomination stands for on certain topics, such as whether or not to place women in leadership, or whether we feel strongly about a mode of baptism 
or the meaning of communion. Some love liturgies and more formal worship styles, while others like a more relaxed style. But back to the question, how do we get to denominations in the first place? To understand that, we have to look back 400 years following the Protestant Reformation in the 16th century of Europe. The Reformers rebelled against the Roman Catholic Church because of its stranglehold on politics. This not only made religion territorial, but it led to all sorts of corruptions in the Christian doctrine that they practiced. Unfortunately, the Reformers, they fell into the same pattern, insisting that they had a corner on the truth and wanted everyone in their countries to agree with them. Now, going back even further, there was one holy Catholic, universal, apostolic church until 1054, when the Roman Catholic Church and the Orthodox Church split. Then in 1517, the Protestant Reformation, it started replacing the authority of the Pope with the authority of Scripture. In the 18th century, a revival broke out in England, and John Wesley started what the people called Methodists. All the division was, it it, it birthed out of the redeeming of the brokenness of the church in all those instances. So let me ask you the question again. What would Jesus say about all of the different denominations? Well, let's think biblically. Jesus was a Jew. With Judaism, there were different groups. You had the Pharisees, you had the Sadducees, the Nazarites, the Essences, and the Zealots. When Jesus condemned a group, it wasn't because there were separate groups. But because of their view of God's word, their view of God, and how to live it out in love. That's why he called them out. You see, this would have been a perfect time for Jesus to say there shouldn't have been different groups. But he didn't say that. So why do we have a church building? Since they are not part of the early church. Let me ask you that question. When we see the birth of the church at Pentecost, when the Holy Spirit came upon the people of Jerusalem, let's read about that here in Acts chapter 2, verses 42 through 47. They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to fellowship, to the breaking of bread and to prayer. Everyone was filled with awe at the many wonders and signs performed by the apostles. All the believers were together and had everything in common. They sold property and possessions to give to anyone who had need. Every day they continued to meet together in the temple courts. They broke bread in their homes and they ate together with glad and sincere hearts, praising God and enjoying the favor of all the people. And the Lord added to their number daily those who were being saved. You see, they weren't called Christians. At the start, they were Jews who were following a crucified Savior in Jesus. But they still gathered together in a building or in their homes. 
when the writers of the New Testament wrote about the church, they weren't referring to a building. They were referring to a gathering of people, a gathering of people that followed Jesus together. When the pandemic hit, our leadership team, we weren't worried about our church family not being able to meet in this building. We knew that for a short period of time, we were going to have to meet online, and then eventually we would be able to meet in homes, and then eventually we're back like we are today, back inside the building. In Acts 12, it says that the church was earnestly praying for Peter. He was, he was set free, and he immediately went to where the church was gathered. If I go back to Acts chapter 12, verse 12, When this had dawned on him, he went to the house of Mary, the mother of John, also called Mark, where there were many people had gathered and were praying. You see, John, also known as Mark, his mom was a church planter. She opened her home so that followers of Jesus could gather together. It was basically a small group that would become a house church. You see, this is the importance of of gathering together as followers of Jesus as we are here this morning. This is the importance of also being part of a small group. You see, I wasn't worried about when the pandemic hit because I knew it was temporary that we couldn't gather. We come together to reach out to those who are searching the good news of Jesus and to equip believers to be fully devoted followers of Jesus. And now to our final question today. Why does the church, why does the church Charter Oak Church, allow women to preach? This is one of those non-essential beliefs, and it's why there are different denominations. Different denominations and churches take different stances on this. But before I begin, I just want to say it's okay if we can agree to disagree on this. This is Charter Oak Church's stance, and this is a non-essential belief. I want to take a look at two passages in the New Testament that brings this question up to our church and other churches around the world. Let's open to 1 Timothy chapter 2, verses 11 and 12. A woman should learn in quietness and full submission. I do not permit a woman to teach or to assume authority over a man. She must be quiet. Then let's turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 14, verses 34 and 35. Women should remain silent in churches. They are not allowed to speak, but must be in submission, as the law says. If they want to inquire about something, they should ask their own husbands at home, For it is disgraceful for a woman to speak in the church. Paul is forbidding something in both of these passages. And it seems disingenuous to say, uh, as many people will want to argue, that Paul wasn't trying to forbid anything, right? No. In, In my opinion, it's lazy or bad interpretation to simply throw up your hands and say, I can't understand it. So I'm just going to do what's right for me. 
There are two things with these passages that I want to cover. But first is that I do believe Paul was forbidding something in each of these passages. And second, we need to look at the whole counsel of what Paul writes and then see what is written in the book of Acts. First, what is Paul forbidding? Remember, you are free to disagree with me on this. It isn't an essential belief of this, of this church, Charter Oak, and people will take a strong stance on this subject and what they believe about this. But I can assure you that when you get to heaven, Jesus isn't going to ask you, what did you believe about women preaching? He's probably going to ask, why did you make such a big deal of it in such an unloving way? The first section of this letter that Timothy is addressing, if I turn back to Timothy, let's go back to verses 9 and 10 in chapter 2. These are the two verses before 11 and 12 that I just read. I also want the women to dress modestly, with decency and propriety, adorning themselves not with elaborate hairstyles or gold or pearls or expensive clothes, but with good deeds appropriate for women who profess to worship God. You see, this statement isn't a blanket statement against wearing women wearing jewelry or nice clothes. It's a warning against seductive, prideful, or conspicuous display. This is not whether women should seek self-beauty, but how they do so. Then Paul goes on to, to write about women learning in quietness and in full submission. So why is, why is Paul calling women out here? He tells men and women to learn in quietness and in full submission. And then, obviously, Jesus held high regard to this as well because of, of what he said to Mary about her sister Martha, right? Were some women in, in, in Ephesus disruptive and, and whispering to inattention? Yeah, that's what Paul writes in 1 Timothy 5.13. Did some not share their husband's faith? verbally challenging their husbands in front of others. There are, these are all possibilities why Paul would write that women aren't allowed to speak. I also think that, that Paul's addressing some, some confusion that would have happened when the first church met because they met in private homes. There's uncertainty as to whether Paul is addressing the home life or the church. We see in, in 1 Corinthians uh, 14, verse 26, let me turn to that next. What then shall we say, brothers and sisters, when you come together, each of you as a hymn or a word of instruction, a revelation, a revelation of tongue or an interpretation? Everything must be done so that the church may be built up. Paul clearly opens up with the fact that both men and women were teaching, singing, speaking in tongues, and interpreting. But the most important part is the last part of that verse, that the church may be built up. 
In other words, it can't become about any individual. It's about building God's church. So now let's go back and let's read verses 34 and 35 again. Women should remain silent in churches. They are not allowed to speak, but must be in submission. As the law says, if they want to inquire about something, they should ask their own husbands at home, for it is disgraceful for a woman to speak in the church. Paul's obviously not issuing a general command for women to be silent. Paul is addressing a married woman who might want to be involved in the evaluation of her husband's prophecy or to disrupt the worship service by asking questions of their husband about their prophecy. Once again, I think this gets confusing because the relationship between husband and wife and the role that people have in the church during that time. Ultimately, I don't think that we can interpret something that was specific to be an overarching rule of all time and of all places. If that was true, every time we gathered, we would greet each other with a holy kiss. Because Paul instructs the, the church to do so in Romans chapter 16, verse 16. I know I didn't do that today. I didn't see many of you, you know, or I didn't watch all of you, but I, I didn't see anybody else giving a holy kiss to their brother or sister when they walked in the door today. But let me point out a, a couple other places in the New Testament to give a bigger context for why we allow women to preach here at Charter Oak Church. Acts chapter 2, Peter says that when the Holy Spirit was given at Pentecost, that it was a fulfillment of Joel 2, both men and women would prophesy or teach. Acts chapter 12, we talked about that earlier with John Mark's mom planting a church in her home. And then in, in Acts chapter 18, we are introduced to a wife and a husband, Priscilla and Aquila, who take Paul into their home and who later in, in, in Acts 18, they teach Apollos the way of God more accurately. Romans 16, verses 3 through 5, Paul commends Priscilla and Aquila as co-workers. In other words, they are paid pastors just like Paul. And then in Romans 16, verse 7, we are introduced to Junia, who is also called an apostle. The only people that Paul calls an apostle and are listed by name are those who are clearly recognized as clergy in the early church. You see, all of this is biblical evidence that we use to allow women to preach here at Charter Oak Church. We don't try to, to dismiss what Paul was written as forbidden. I believe he's being very specific, but not overarching. And it's proof that we see him pointing to women in the church who were leaders, who were teachers and pastors. As we walk through this series, let us keep in mind what St. Augustine said over 1,500 years ago. In essentials, unity. In non-essentials, liberty. And in all things, love. I want you to all know as part of the leadership team here at this campus, I love you deeply and I care for you immensely. 
Your questions are incredibly important to us. I am grateful that we get to wrestle with these questions together as brothers and sisters in Christ. Let us pray. Lord, I thank you. I thank you for showing us your love. I thank you for what you did on that cross. I thank you for this scripture that we're able to hold in our hands and read so fluently. Lord, I'm thankful that we get to know you. And Lord, I'm also thankful for for the divisions. And I'm thankful for healthy conflict. As it's able to reveal and redeem what's in our hearts. I pray for healthy families. I pray for our church family. I pray that we're able to to look at all of of these conflicts and divisions through your love and with your guidance. Lord, I pray for those who couldn't be here this morning. We pray for safe travels for everyone on their way home today. Lord, I love you and I thank you. And in Jesus' name we all pray. Amen.